Chapter 11, Part 2 of The Secret Agent by Joseph Conrad. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Dan. PeterDanAuthor.com. The silence in the kitchen was prolonged, and Mr. Verloc felt disappointed. He had expected his wife to say something. But Mrs. Verloc's lips, composed in their usual form, preserved a statuesque immobility like the rest of her face. And Mr. Verloc was disappointed. Yet the occasion did not, he recognised, demand speech from her. She was a woman of very few words. For reasons involved in the very foundation of his psychology, Mr. Verloc was inclined to put his trust in any woman who had given herself to him. Therefore he trusted his wife. Their accord was perfect, but it was not precise. It was a tacit accord, congenial to Mrs. Verloc's incuriosity and to Mr. Verloc's habits of mind, which were indolent and secret. They refrained from going to the bottom of facts and motives. This reserve, expressing in a way their profound confidence in each other, introduced at the same time a certain element of vagueness into their intimacy. No system of conjugal relations is perfect. Mr. Verloc presumed that his wife had understood him, but he would have been glad to hear her say what she thought at the moment. It would have been a comfort. There were several reasons why this comfort was denied him. There was a physical obstacle. Mrs. Verloc had no sufficient command over her voice. She did not see any alternative between screaming and silence, and instinctively she chose the silence. Winnie Verloc was temperamentally a silent person, and there was the paralysing atrocity of the thought which occupied her. Her cheeks were blanched, her lips ashy, her immobility amazing. And she thought without looking at Mr. Verloc, this man took the boy away to murder him. He took the boy away from his home to murder him. He took the boy away from me to murder him. Mrs. Verloc's whole being was racked by that inconclusive and maddening thought. It was in her veins, in her bones, in the roots of her hair. Mentally she assumed the biblical attitude of mourning, the covered face, the rent garments. The sound of wailing and lamentation filled her head, but her teeth were violently clenched, and her tearless eyes were hot with rage because she was not a submissive creature. The protection she had extended over her brother had been in its origin of a fierce and indignant complexion. She had to love him with a militant love. She had battled for him, even against herself. His loss had the bitterness of defeat with the anguish of a baffled passion. It was not an ordinary stroke of death. Moreover, it was not death that took Stevie from her. It was Mr. Verloc who took him away. She had seen him. She had watched him, without raising a hand, take the boy away. And she had let him go, like like a fool, a blind fool. Then, after he had murdered the boy, he came home to her. Just came home like any other man would come home to his wife. Through her set teeth, Mrs. Verloc muttered at the wall, and I thought he had caught a cold. Mr. Verloc heard these words and appropriated them. 
it was nothing, he said moodily. I was upset. I was upset on your account. Mrs. Verloc, turning her head slowly, transferred her stare from the wall to her husband's person. Mr. Verloc, with the tips of his fingers between his lips, was looking on the ground. Can't be helped, he mumbled, letting his hand fall. You must pull yourself together. You'll want all your wits about you. It is you who brought the police about our ears. Never mind, I won't say anything more about it, continued Mr. Verloc magnanimously. You couldn't know. I couldn't, breathed out Mrs. Verloc. It was as if a corpse had spoken. Mr. Verloc took up the thread of his discourse. I don't blame you. I'll make them sit up. Once under lock and key, it will be safe enough for me to talk, you understand? You must reckon on me being two years away from you, he continued in a tone of sincere concern. It will be easier for you than for me. You'll have something to do while I... Look here, Winnie, what you must do is to keep this business going for two years. You know enough for that. You've a good head on you. I'll send you word when it's time to go about trying to sell. You'll have to be extra careful. The comrades will be keeping an eye on you all the time. You'll have to be as artful as you know how and as close as the grave. No one must know what you are going to do. I have no mind to get a knock on the head or a stab in the back directly I am let out. Thus spoke Mr. Verloc, applying his mind with ingenuity and forethought to the problems of the future. His voice was sombre because he had a correct sentiment of the situation. Everything which he did not wish to pass had come to pass. The future had become precarious. His judgment, perhaps, had been momentarily obscured by his dread of Mr. Vladimir's truculent folly. A man somewhat over forty may be excusably thrown into considerable disorder by the prospect of losing his employment, especially if the man is a secret agent of political police, dwelling secure in the consciousness of his high value and in the esteem of high personages. He was excusable. Now the thing had ended in a crash. Mr. Verloc was cool, but he was not cheerful. A secret agent who throws his secrecy to the winds from desire of vengeance and flaunts his achievements before the public eye becomes the mark for desperate and bloodthirsty indignations. Without unduly exaggerating the danger, Mr. Verloc tried to bring it clearly before his wife's mind. He repeated that he had no intention to let the revolutionists do away with him. He looked straight into his wife's eyes. The enlarged pupils of the woman received his stare into their unfathomable depths. "'I am too fond of you for that,' he said with a little nervous laugh. A faint flush coloured Mrs. Verloc's ghastly and motionless face. Having done with the visions of the past, she had not only heard but had also understood the words uttered by her husband— by their extreme disaccord with her mental condition, these words produced on her a slightly suffocating effect. Mrs. Verloc's mental condition had the merit of simplicity, but it was not sound. It was governed too much by a fixed idea. Every nook and cranny of her brain was filled with the thought that this man, with whom she had lived without distaste for seven years, had taken the poor boy away from her in order to kill him the man to whom she had grown accustomed in body and mind, 
the man whom she had trusted took the boy away to kill him. In its form, in its substance, in its effect, which was universal, altering even the aspect of inanimate things, it was a thought to sit still and marvel at forever and ever. Mrs. Verloc sat still, and across that thought, not across the kitchen, the form of Mr. Verloc went to and fro, familiarly in hat and overcoat, stamping with his boots upon her brain. He was probably talking too, but Mrs. Verloc's thought for the most part covered the voice. Now and then, however, the voice would make itself heard. Several connected words emerged at times. Their purport was generally hopeful. On each of these occasions, Mrs. Verloc's dilated pupils, losing their far-off fixity, followed her husband's movements with the effect of black care and impenetrable attention. Well informed upon all matters relating to his secret calling, Mr. Verloc augured well for the success of his plans and combinations. He really believed that it would be upon the whole easy for him to escape the knife of infuriated revolutionists. He had exaggerated the strength of their fury and the length of their arm for professional purposes, too often to have many illusions one way or the other. For to exaggerate with judgment, one must begin by measuring with nicety. He knew also how much virtue and how much infamy is forgotten in two years, two long years. His first really confidential discourse to his wife was optimistic from conviction. He also thought it good policy to display all the assurance he could muster. It would put heart into the poor woman. On his liberation, which, harmonising with the whole tenor of his life, would be secret, of course... They would vanish together without loss of time. As to covering up the tracks, he begged his wife to trust him for that. He knew how it was to be done so that the devil himself... He waved his hand. He seemed to boast. He wished only to put heart into her. It was a benevolent intention, but Mr. Verloc had the misfortune not to be in accord with his audience. The self-confident tone grew upon Mrs. Verloc's ear, which let most of the words go by, for what were words to her now? What could words do to her, for good or evil, in the face of her fixed idea? Her black glance followed that man who was asserting his impunity, the man who had taken poor Stevie from home to kill him somewhere. Mrs. Verloc could not remember exactly where, but her heart began to beat very perceptibly. Mr. Verloc, in a soft and conjugal tone, was now expressing his firm belief that there were yet a few good years of quiet life before them both. He did not go into the question of means. A quiet life it must be, and, as it were, nestling in the shade, concealed among men whose flesh is grass, modest like the life of violets, the words used by Mr. Verloc were lie low for a bit. And far from England, of course. It was not clear whether Mr. Verloc had in mind Spain or South America, but at any rate, somewhere abroad. This last word, falling into Mrs. Verloc's ear, produced a definite impression. This man was talking of going abroad. The impression was completely disconnected, and such is the force of mental habit that Mrs. Verloc at once and automatically asked herself, and what of Stevie? 
It was a sort of forgetfulness, but instantly she became aware that there was no longer any occasion for anxiety on that score. There would never be any occasion any more. The poor boy had been taken out and killed. The poor boy was dead. This shaking piece of forgetfulness stimulated Mrs Verloc's intelligence. She began to perceive certain consequences which would have surprised Mr Verloc. There was no need for her now to stay there, in that kitchen, in that house, with that man, since the boy was gone forever. No need whatever. And on that Mrs Verloc rose as if raised by a spring, but neither could she see what there was to keep her in the world at all, and this inability arrested her. Mr. Verloc watched her with marital solicitude. "'You're looking more like yourself,' he said uneasily. Something peculiar in the blackness of his wife's eyes disturbed his optimism. At that precise moment Mrs. Verloc began to look upon herself as released from all earthly ties. She had her freedom. Her contract with existence, as represented by that man standing over there, was at an end. She was a free woman. Had this view become in some way perceptible to Mr. Verloc, he would have been extremely shocked. In his affairs of the heart, Mr. Verloc had always been carelessly generous, yet always with no other idea than that of being loved for himself. Upon this matter, his ethical notions being in agreement with his vanity, he was completely incorrigible. That this should be so in the case of his virtuous and legal connection, he was perfectly certain. He had grown older, fatter, heavier, in the belief that he lacked no fascination for being loved for his own sake. When he saw Mrs. Verloc starting to walk out of the kitchen without a word, he was disappointed. "'Where are you going to?' he called out rather sharply. "'Upstairs?' Mrs. Verloc, in the doorway, turned at the voice. An instinct of prudence, born of fear, the excessive fear of being approached and touched by that man, induced her to nod at him slightly, from the height of two steps, with a stir of the lips which the conjugal optimism of Mr. Verloc took for a wan and uncertain smile. "'That's right,' he encouraged her gruffly. "'Rest and quiet, that's what you want. Go on. It won't be long before I am with you.' Mrs. Verloc, the free woman who had had really no idea where she was going to, obeyed the suggestion with rigid steadiness. Mr. Verloc watched her. She disappeared up the stairs. He was disappointed. There was that within him which would have been more satisfied if she had been moved to throw herself upon his breast. But he was generous and indulgent. When he was always undemonstrative and silent... Neither was Mr. Verloc himself prodigal of endearments and words as a rule. But this was not an ordinary evening. It was an occasion when a man wants to be fortified and strengthened by open proofs of sympathy and affection. Mr. Verloc sighed and put out the gas in the kitchen. Mr. Verloc's sympathy with his wife was genuine and intense. It almost brought tears into his eyes as he stood in the parlour reflecting on the loneliness hanging over her head. In this mood, Mr. Verloc missed Stevie very much out of a difficult world. He thought mournfully of his end. If only that 
lad had not stupidly destroyed himself. The sensation of unappeasable hunger, not unknown after the strain of a hazardous enterprise to adventurers of tougher fibre than Mr. Verloc, overcame him again. The piece of roast beef, laid out in the likeness of funereal baked meats for Stevie's obsequies, offered itself largely to his notice. And Mr. Verloc again partook. He partook ravenously, without restraint and decency, cutting thick slices with the sharp carving knife and swallowing them without bread. In the course of that refection it occurred to Mr. Verloc that he was not hearing his wife move about the bedroom as he should have done. The thought of finding her perhaps sitting on the bed in the dark not only cut Mr. Verloc's appetite, but also took from him the inclination to follow her upstairs just yet. Laying down the carving knife, Mr. Verloc listened with careworn attention. He was comforted by hearing her move at last. She walked suddenly across the room and threw the window up. After a period of stillness up there, during which he figured her to himself with her head out, he heard the sash being lowered slowly. Then she made a few steps and sat down. Every resonance of his house was familiar to Mr. Verloc, who was thoroughly domesticated. When next he heard his wife's footsteps overhead, he knew, as well as if he had seen her doing it, that she had been putting on her walking shoes. Mr. Verloc wriggled his shoulders slightly at this ominous symptom and, moving away from the table, stood with his back to the fireplace, his head on one side and gnawing perplexedly at the tips of his fingers. He kept track of her movements by the sound. She walked here and there violently, with abrupt stoppages, now before the chest of drawers, and then in front of the wardrobe, an immense load of weariness. The harvest of a day of shocks and surprises weighed Mr. Verloc's energies to the ground. He did not raise his eyes till he heard his wife descending the stairs. It was as he had guessed. She was dressed for going out. Mrs. Verloc was a free woman. She had thrown open the window of the bedroom either with the intention of screaming, Murder! Help! or of throwing herself out for she did not exactly know what used to make of her freedom. The personality seemed to have been torn into two pieces, whose mental operations did not adjust themselves very well to each other. The street, silent and deserted from end to end, repelled her by taking sides with that man who was so certain of his impunity. She was afraid to shout, lest no one should come. Obviously no one would come. Her instinct of self-preservation recoiled from the depth of the fall into that sort of slimy, deep trench. Mrs. Verloc closed the window and dressed herself to go out into the street by another way. She was a free woman. She had dressed herself thoroughly, down to the tying of a black veil over her face. As she appeared before him in the light of the parlour, Mr. Verloc observed that she had even her little handbag hanging from her left wrist flying off to a mother, of course. The thought that women were wearisome creatures, after all, presented itself to his fatigued brain. But he was too generous to harbour it for more than an instant. This man, hurt cruelly in his vanity, remained magnanimous in his conduct, allowing himself no satisfaction of a bitter smile or of a contemptuous gesture. 
With true greatness of soul, he only glanced at the wooden clock on the wall and said in a perfectly calm but forcible manner, Five and twenty minutes past eight, Winnie. There's no sense in going over there so late. You will never manage to get back tonight. Before his extended hand, Mrs. Verloc had stopped short. He added heavily, Your mother will be gone to bed before you get there. This is the sort of news that can wait. Nothing was further from Mrs. Verloc's thoughts than going to her mother. She recoiled at the mere idea, and feeling a chair behind her, she obeyed the suggestion of the touch and sat down. Her intention had been simply to get outside the door forever. And if this feeling was correct, its mental form took an unrefined shape corresponding to her origin and station. I would rather walk the streets all the days of my life, she thought. But this creature, whose moral nature had been subjected to a shock of which, in the physical order, the most violent earthquake of history could only be a faint and languid rendering, was at the mercy of mere trifles of casual contact. She sat down. With her hat and veil she had the air of a visitor, of having looked in on Mr. Verloc for a moment. Her instant docility encouraged him, whilst her aspect of only temporary and silent acquiescence provoked him a little. Let me tell you, Winnie, he said with authority, that your place is here this evening. Hang it all. You brought the damn police high and low about my ears. I don't blame you, but it's your doing all the same. You'd better take this confounded hat off. I can't let you go out, old girl, he added in a softened voice. Mrs. Verloc's mind got hold of that declaration with morbid tenacity. The man who had taken Stevie out from under her very eyes to murder him in a locality whose name was at the moment not present in her memory would not allow her to go out. Of course he wouldn't. Now he had murdered Stevie, he would never let her go. He would want to keep her for nothing. And on this characteristic reasoning, having all the force of insane logic, Mrs. Verloc's disconnected wits went to work practically. She could slip by him, open the door, run out. But he would dash after her, seize her round the body, drag her back into the shop. She could scratch, kick and bite, and stab too, but for stabbing she wanted a knife. Mrs. Verloc sat still under her black veil, in her own house, like a masked and mysterious visitor of impenetrable intentions. Mr. Verloc's magnanimity was not more than human. She had exasperated him at last. "'Can't you say something? You have your own dodges for vexing a man. Oh, yes, I know your deaf and dumb trick. I've seen you at it before today, but just now it won't do. And to begin with, take this damn thing off. One can't tell whether one is talking to a dummy or to a live woman.' He advanced and, stretching out his hand, dragged the veil off, unmasking a still, unreadable face, against which his nervous exasperation was shattered like a glass bubble flung against a rock. "'That's better,' he said to cover his momentary uneasiness, and retreated back to his old station by the mantelpiece. It never entered his head that his wife could give him up. He felt a little ashamed of himself, for he was fond and generous, what could he do? Everything had been said already. He protested vehemently. My heavens, you know that I hunted high and low. 
I ran the risk of giving myself away to find somebody for that accursed job, and I tell you again, I couldn't find anyone crazy enough or hungry enough. What do you take me for, a murderer or what? The boy is gone. Do you think I wanted him to blow himself up? He's gone. His troubles are over. Ours are just going to begin, I tell you, precisely because he did blow himself up. I don't blame you. But just try to understand that it was a pure accident, as much an accident as if he had been run over by a bus while crossing the street. His generosity was not infinite, because he was a human being, and not a monster as Mrs. Verloc believed him to be. He paused, and a snarl lifting his moustaches above a gleam of white teeth gave him the expression of a reflective beast, not very dangerous, a slow beast with a sleek head, gloomier than a seal, and with a husky voice. When it comes to that, it's as much your doing as mine. That's so. You may glare as much as you like. I know what you can do in that way. Strike me dead if I would ever have thought of the lad for that purpose. It was you who kept on shoving him in my way when I was half distracted with the worry of keeping the lot of us out of trouble. What the devil made you? One would think you were doing it on purpose, and I'm damned if I know that you didn't. There's no saying how much of what's going on you have got hold of on the sly with your infernal don't-care-a-damn way of looking nowhere in particular and saying nothing at all. His husky, domestic voice ceased for a while. Mrs. Verloc made no reply. Before that silence he felt ashamed of what he had said. But as often happens to peaceful men in domestic tiffs, being ashamed, he pushed another point. "'You have a devilish way of holding your tongue sometimes,' he began again, without raising his voice. "'Enough to make some men go mad. "'It's lucky for you that I am not so easily put out as some of them would be by your deaf and dumb sulks. "'I am fond of you. "'But don't you go too far. "'This isn't the time for it. "'We ought to be thinking of what we've got to do, "'and I can't let you go out tonight galloping off to your mother with some crazy tale or other about me. "'I won't have it.' Don't you make any mistake about it. If you will have it that I killed the boy, then you've killed him as much as I. In sincerity of feeling and openness of statement, these words went far beyond anything that had ever been said in this home, kept up on the wages of a secret industry eked out by the sale of more or less secret wares, the poor expedients devised by a mediocre mankind for preserving an imperfect society from the dangers of moral and physical corruption, both secret, too, of their kind. They were spoken because Mr. Verloc had felt himself really outraged, but the reticent decencies of this home life, nestling in a shady street behind a shop where the sun never shone, remained apparently undisturbed. Mrs. Verloc heard him out with perfect propriety, and then rose from her chair, in her hat and jacket, like a visitor at the end of a call. She advanced towards her husband, one arm extended as if for a silent leave-taking. Her net veil, dangling down by one end on the left side of her face, gave an air of disorderly formality to her restrained movements. But when she arrived as far as the hearthrug, Mr. Verloc was no longer standing there. He had moved off in the direction of the sofa, without raising his eyes to watch the effect of his tirade. He was tired, resigned in a truly marital spirit. But he felt hurt in the tender spot of his secret weakness. If she would go on sulking in that dreadful overcharged silence, why, then she must. 
She was a master in that domestic art. Mr. Verloc flung himself heavily upon the sofa, disregarding as usual the fate of his hat, which, as if accustomed to take care of itself, made for a safe shelter under the table. He was tired. The last particle of his nervous force had been expended in the wonders and agonies of this day full of surprising failures coming at the end of a harassing month of scheming and insomnia. He was tired. A man isn't made of stone. Hang everything. Mr. Verloc reposed characteristically, clad in his outdoor garments. One side of his open overcoat was lying partly on the ground. Mr. Verloc wallowed on his back, but he longed for a more perfect rest, for sleep, for a few hours of delicious forgetfulness. That would come later. Provisionally, he rested, and he thought, I wish you would give over this damned nonsense. It's exasperating. There must have been something imperfect in Mrs. Verloc's sentiment of regained freedom. Instead of taking the way of the door, she leaned back, with her shoulders against the tablet of the mantelpiece as a wayfarer rests against a fence. A tinge of wildness in her aspect was derived from the black veil hanging like a rag against her cheek, and from the fixity of her black gaze where the light of the room was absorbed and lost without the trace of a single gleam. This woman, capable of a bargain the mere suspicion of which would have been infinitely shocking to Mr. Verloc's idea of love, remained irresolute as if scrupulously aware of something wanting on her part for the formal closing of the transaction. On the sofa, Mr. Verloc wriggled his shoulders into perfect comfort, and from the fullness of his heart emitted a wish which was certainly as pious as anything likely to come from such a source. "'I wish to goodness,' he growled huskily, "'I had never seen Greenwich Park or anything belonging to it.' The veiled sound filled the small room with its moderate volume, well adapted to the modest nature of the wish. The waves of air of the proper length, propagated in accordance with correct mathematical formulas, flowed around all the inanimate things in the room, lapped against Mrs. Verloc's head as if it had been a head of stone. And incredible as it may appear, the eyes of Mrs. Verloc seemed to grow still larger the audible wish of Mr. Verloc's overflowing heart flowed into an empty place in his wife's memory. Greenwich Park. A park. That's where the boy was killed. A park. Smashed branches, torn leaves, gravel, bits of brotherly flesh and bone, all spouting up together in the manner of a firework. She remembered now what she had heard, and she remembered it pictorially. They had to gather him up with the shovel. Trembling all over with irrepressible shudders, she saw before her the very implement with its ghastly load scraped up from the ground. Mrs. Verloc closed her eyes, desperately throwing upon that vision the night of her eyelids, where, after a rain-like fall of mangled limbs, the decapitated head of Stevie lingered suspended alone and fading out slowly like the last star of a pyrotechnic display. Mrs. Verloc opened her eyes. Her face was no longer stony. Anybody could have noted the subtle change on her features, 
in the stare of her eyes, giving her a new, startling expression, an expression seldom observed by competent persons under the conditions of leisure and security demanded for thorough analysis, but whose meaning could not be mistaken at a glance. Mrs. Verloc's doubts as to the end of the bargain no longer existed. Her wits, no longer disconnected, were working under the control of her will. But Mr. Verloc observed nothing. He was reposing in that pathetic condition of optimism induced by excessive fatigue. He did not want any more trouble with his wife, too, of all people in the world. He had been unanswerable in his vindication. He was loved for himself. The present phase of her silence he interpreted favourably. This was the time to make it up with her. The silence had lasted long enough. He broke it by calling to her in an undertone. Winnie! Yes, answered obediently Mrs. Verloc, the free woman. She commanded her wits now, her vocal organs. She felt herself to be in almost preternaturally perfect control of every fibre of her body. It was all her own, because the bargain was at an end. She was clear-sighted. She had become cunning. She chose to answer him so readily for a purpose. She did not wish that man to change his position on the sofa, which was very suitable to the circumstances. She succeeded. The man did not stir. But after answering him, she remained leaning negligently against the mantelpiece in the attitude of a resting wayfarer. She was unhurried. Her brow was smooth. The head and shoulders of Mr. Verloc were hidden from her by the high side of the sofa. She kept her eyes fixed on his feet. She remained thus mysteriously still and suddenly collected till Mr. Verloc was heard with an accent of marital authority and moving slightly to make room for her to sit on the edge of the sofa. "'Come here,' he said in a peculiar tone, which might have been the tone of brutality, but was intimately known to Mrs. Verloc as the note of wooing. She started forward at once as if she was still a loyal woman bound to that man by an unbroken contract. Her right hand skimmed slightly the end of the table, and when she had passed on towards the sofa, the carving knife had vanished without the slightest sound from the side of the dish. Mr. Verloc heard the creaky plank in the floor and was content. He waited. Mrs. Verloc was coming. As if the homeless soul of Stevie had flown for shelter straight to the breast of his sister, guardian and protector, the resemblance of her face with that of her brother grew at every step, even to the droop of the lower lip, even to the slight divergence of the eyes. But Mr. Verloc did not see that. He was lying on his back and staring upwards. He saw partly on the ceiling and partly on the wall the moving shadow of an arm with a clenched hand holding a carving knife. It flickered up and down. Its movements were leisurely. They were leisurely enough for Mr. Verloc to recognise the limb and the weapon. They were leisurely enough for him to take in the full meaning of the portent and to taste the flavour of death rising in his gorge. His wife had gone raving mad, murdering mad. They were leisurely enough for the first paralysing effect of this discovery to pass away before a resolute determination to come out victorious from the ghastly struggle with that armed lunatic. 
They were leisurely enough for Mr Verloc to elaborate a plan of defence involving a dash behind the table and the felling of the woman to the ground with a heavy wooden chair, but they were not leisurely enough to allow Mr Verloc the time to move either hand or foot. The knife was already planted in his breast. It met no resistance on its way. Hazard has such accuracies. Into that plunging blow, delivered over the side of the couch, Mrs. Verloc had put all the inheritance of her immemorial and obscure descent, the simple ferocity of the age of caverns and the unbalanced nervous fury of the age of barrooms. Mr. Verloc, the secret agent, turning slightly on his side with the force of the blow, expired without stirring a limb, in the muttered sound of the word, Don't, by way of protest. Mrs. Verloc had let go the knife, and her extraordinary resemblance to her late brother had faded, had become very ordinary now. She drew a deep breath, the first easy breath since Chief Inspector Heat had exhibited to her the labelled piece of Stevie's overcoat. She leant forward on her folded arms over the side of the sofa. She adopted that easy attitude not in order to watch or gloat over the body of Mr. Verloc, but because of the undulatory and swinging movements of the parlour, which for some time behaved as though it were at sea in a tempest. She was giddy, but calm. She had become a free woman, with a perfection of freedom which left her nothing to desire and absolutely nothing to do, since Stevie's urgent claim on her devotion no longer existed. Mrs. Verloc, who thought in images, was not troubled now by visions because she did not think at all. And she did not move. She was a woman enjoying her complete irresponsibility and endless leisure, almost in the manner of a corpse. She did not move. She did not think. Neither did the mortal envelope of the late Mr. Verloc reposing on the sofa except for the fact that Mrs. Verloc breathed, these two would have been perfect in accord, that accord of prudent reserve without superfluous words and sparing of signs which had been the foundation of their respectable home life. For it had been respectable, covering by a decent reticence the problems that may arise in the practice of a secret profession and the commerce of shady wares. To the last its decorum had remained undisturbed by unseemly shrieks and other misplaced sincerities of conduct, and after the striking of the blow this respectability was continued in immobility and silence. Nothing moved in the parlour till Mrs Verloc raised her head slowly and looked at the clock with inquiring mistrust. She had become aware of a ticking sound in the room. It grew upon her ear, while she remembered clearly that the clock on the wall was silent, had no audible tick. What did it mean by beginning to tick so loudly all of a sudden? Its face indicated ten minutes to nine. Mrs. Verloc cared nothing for time, and the ticking went on. She concluded it could not be the clock, and her sullen gaze moved along the walls, wavered and became vague while she strained her hearing to locate the sound. Tick, tick, tick. After listening for some time, Mrs. Verloc lowered her gaze deliberately on her husband's body. 
Its attitude of repose was so homelike and familiar that she could do so without feeling embarrassed by any pronounced novelty in the phenomena of her home life. Mr. Verloc was taking his habitual ease. He looked comfortable. By the position of the body, the face of Mr. Verloc was not visible to Mrs. Verloc, his widow. Her fine, sleepy eyes, travelling downward on the track of the sound, became contemplative on meeting a flat object of bone which protruded a little beyond the edge of the sofa. It was the handle of the domestic carving knife, with nothing strange about it but its position at right angles to Mr. Verloc's waistcoat and the fact that something dripped from it. Dark drops fell on the floor cloth one after another, with a sound of ticking growing fast and furious like the pulse of an insane clock. At its highest speed this ticking changed into a continuous sound of trickling. Mrs. Verloc watched that transformation with shadows of anxiety coming and going on her face. It was a trickle, dark, swift, thin. Blood. At this unforeseen circumstance, Mrs. Verloc abandoned her pose of idleness and irresponsibility. With a sudden snatch at her skirts and a faint shriek, she ran to the door, as if the trickle had been the first sign of a destroying flood. Finding the table in her way, she gave it a push with both hands as though it had been alive, with such force that it went for some distance on its four legs, making a loud, scraping racket, whilst the big dish with the joint crashed heavily on the floor. Then all became still. Mrs. Verloc, on reaching the door, had stopped. A round hat, disclosed in the middle of the floor by the moving of the table, rocked slightly on its crown in the wind of her flight. End of chapter 11, part 2